0: So this morning, I would like to begin a question for the message, and maybe it's a question that you've wondered, but the question is this. Why can't the Christian God just forgive and forget? I mean, why did somebody have to die for somebody else? And in the Old Testament, I mean, you're reading through it, there's like all these animal sacrifices. It's like, what's with all of the dying? I mean, you and I forgive people all the time without having to die for someone or requiring somebody to die so the whole idea of somebody has to die for somebody else to be able to forgive them especially a god person doesn't that seem a little barbaric i mean doesn't it seem like if we're just intellectually honest doesn't it seem a bit unnecessary and extreme and we need to ask this question we need to ask this question because this is at the core of christianity This is essential, this is fundamental, and from the very beginning. In fact, there's a first century creed that is actually older than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, any of the epistles. It was created maybe within the first weeks of Christianity, for sure within the first months of Christianity. And in the Greek, there's actually a bit of cadence to it. Uh, And they wrote these creeds in such a way that people could memorize them easily. And, And here's how it would sound in English. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day and was seen. Christ, was, Christ died for our sins and was buried. He was raised on the third day and was seen. And again, in, in the Greek, there was a rhythm because this is how they learned theology. They created these creeds partly because so few people could read. And so this was a way that they could learn. For the very beginning, this is the core of Christianity. But the question remains, why? Why? Why did he have to die? Why doesn't God just forgive everybody? Why, as some Christians think, did God have to kill his own son? Or why did God have to allow his son to be killed? What kind of nonsensical religion would incorporate this and make something this crazy and barbaric as one of its core tenets? Now, if you were raised in or around church, you know, you know the Sunday school answer. And that is that our sin earned us punishment, And Jesus took our punishment for us. And and that's the standard textbook answer. But but seriously, we're talking about God. Can't God just do whatever he wants? Uh, Seriously, and and I see this argument against Christianity more often than you would think. And that is, why would God create his standard so high that none of us could attain it? And then hold us accountable to it? and then kill his son in order to somehow make us right with him, as if his hands were tied, as if he had no other choice. The whole system kind of makes God look a little bit powerless, like a victim of his own arbitrary rules. This is the question that begs to be asked because it's, it's fundamental and it's essential. But for many, this is an obstacle And it has been an obstacle from the very beginning. So today we're continuing the series in partnership with other churches, the fundamental list, Recovering the Essentials of Our Faith. And the question that we're asking and seeking to answer in this entire series is what does a person have to believe in order to be a follower of Jesus? Not what must a person do, because we talk about the do part all of the time. We're asking the question, what are the essentials? What is the irreducible minimum of the things that you have to believe? And the reason that this is such an important question is because, as we've said every week, there are so many versions of Christianity, and it's confusing. And each version or denomination or expression of Christianity, they've got their own terms and conditions, right? They have their own traditions, their expectations, their own way of doing things. Some use different translations of the Bible. Some expressions have Bibles with books in them that we don't even use or recognize. We baptize different, we do communion different, we pray different, we do music and worship different. The only thing all these different expressions and denominations have in common is that we all think we're right, and the other people aren't right, or they are less right, or they're misinformed. And then adding to the confusion is that from the very beginning, things like new and novel ideas get about what church and Christianity should be like. It gets woven into different versions of Christianity And they're just not Jesus things. They're cultural things. They are traditional things. They are temple model things. And sometimes they're toxic and destructive and even demeaning to groups of people. Oftentimes these things are elevated to doctrine and theology. In other words, you must do these things. If you don't do these things, you're not a real Christian. You're out. And they become fundamentals. And if you reject any of them, you're out. You're not a real Christian. And when that happens especially in current culture, thoughtful and mature people feel like they just have to take a step back, take a step back from their church or from their denomination or from that group or from that Bible study and begin to maybe deconstruct. Meaning they like, I've got to step out of organized religion for just a minute to try and wrap my head around and rediscover what's essential because I feel like my church or my denomination or this group has added so many things to it. It just seems problematic. Maybe the tone or the, or the posture of the approach to faith within your church or a group of churches. It's just that It just seems to you like, okay, they know the Bible, but you begin to wonder if they know Jesus. And so this is so important for all of us. It's why some of you may struggle with Christianity because there's no room, no room for your friend or for your family member. No room for your son or for your daughter. Maybe at times you feel like there's no room for you. And suddenly what was to be good news of great joy for all people is not good news of great joy for someone you love. Now so far we've discovered four essentials. If you've missed any, you really need to go back because these get unpacked and and, and there's a, a content that just supports each of these fundamentals. The first one is in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus is that you have to believe that Jesus is God's son and our king because Jesus said that about himself. And the second thing is that Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. And Jesus said something that was either crazy or it was paradigm shifting. He said, If you have seen me, you have seen God. If you have seen me, the Son, you have seen God, the Father. And then number three, if you're going to be a faithful follower of Jesus, that you've got to accept Jesus' definition of sin. And Jesus defines sin as anything that harms you or harms others, whether it's on a sin list or not. And last week we said, if you're going to be a, f- a faithful follower of Jesus, the other thing that you have to believe is that Jesus promised justice in the end and invites us to trust Him in the meantime. That as we look around the world, or we look in our world, and experience or witness injustice evil, wondering why isn't God doing something about it. Jesus is promising there will be justice in the end. Trust me in the meantime. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. And many of you might think I would have started with this one and what we're going to talk about today. And that is this next fundamental, fundamental that Jesus died for your sin to reconcile you to God. And the people who are closest to the action, closest to Jesus in the first century, that his followers, they assure us, this is fundamental. This is core. The person who made this the clearest and talked about it the most was a Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus. He became a Jesus follower who became known as Paul. And about four to five years after the resurrection, not 45 years, in his writing and his teaching, he highlights the importance of this core doctrine and he teases it out for us. This is a letter to Christians living in first century Corinth. He had been there several years before. He has started this young church, and so now he's writing them to remind them of many of the things that he had taught them when he was with them, and the chronology of this is so important. And he writes, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the euangelion. This, this Greek word, euangelion, it was translated in the Old English as Godspell, is where we get our word, Gospel which means good news. So it should just say good news because that's exactly what the word means. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the good news that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this good news, you are saved, which means reconciled to God. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Back in the day, especially when I was younger, people, especially Southern Baptists, like, are you saved? Are you saved, brother? You know, they talk about being saved. Well, this is where the idea, the concept comes from, being saved. It's You're being saved because you were unreconciled to God, but now you are reconciled to God, that you are saved. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, And again, in the Greek, this means first and foremost. It means of all the other things that are important things to believe in practicality and in the implications for our day-to-day life for personally, he says this stands out above them all. And then he quotes this creed created by the early church that he had taught the believers when he was with them years earlier. And the reason, again, that they created these creeds was because you have to remember there's nothing written yet. There's no Christian literature I mean, Paul's in the middle of writing a letter, but he hasn't written all of his letters yet. You didn't have the Gospels. They hadn't been written. And only a small percentage could read anyways. So the Apostle Paul, he takes this creed and he includes it in this letter to the church in ancient Corinth, which one of the many reasons that we believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead is because of the fact that this creed already existed and was circulating. It is evidence of the fact that the early first Christians believed and embraced the idea of Jesus' what the term would be substitutionary death, his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection. And they believed this immediately, not eventually as skeptics often argue. And Paul tells us of what is of first importance. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. Now, do you know why they include that he appeared Because that's how you know when somebody's risen from the dead. Because you've seen them. And in case you didn't know, Paul, he's been in and out of Jerusalem several times, so he knows. He knows Peter and James and John and James, the brother of Jesus. They've had conversations. Bits and pieces of those are recorded for us in the New Testament. And Paul writes to these Christians in Corinth that Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than, and don't miss this, five hundred He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still alive. A lot of people have missed that part. Paul is saying, if you don't believe me, fact check me. Just get on a ship, go to Judea, and make your way to Jerusalem, or reach out, write a letter to one of your close family members, because there was not just two or three of us that think that we saw him. No, there were hundreds of men and women in Jerusalem right now who witnessed and saw a resurrected rabbi from Nazareth. Over 500 people saw him at the same time, most of whom are still living, who are still living, though some have fallen asleep, because Christians obviously view death differently. Then he appeared to James, his brother. And we talk about this all the time. James, Jesus' brother, did not follow Jesus in the Gospels. You don't see him following Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. James thought his brother was crazy. Like, what would your brother have to do to convince you that he was God's Messiah? Nothing. Like, there's nothing they can do. Like, they just can't. And James, just like us, he's just a normal human being. He's like, okay, yeah, all right, Jesus was good. Okay, in fact, he was mom and dad's favorite, like, all the time. He made straight A's in the Torah, but he is not God's son. Give me a break. And then James, the brother of Jesus, meets his resurrected brother, and he calls his brother his Lord. He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So the point is this, that this is essential. This is fundamental from the beginning. So I'd like for us to just say this out loud. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He was raised from the dead and was seen. Okay, just one more time. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He was raised from the dead and was seen. seen. To make it a bit more personal, Christ died for your sins and mine and was buried. He was raised from the dead and was seen. And my hunch is that most of you believe that. And if you're skeptical, that's understandable. So let's just go back to the question, why? Why did he have to die? Why couldn't Jesus just get up and announce forgiveness for everyone? Why couldn't he just get up and announce amnesty for everybody? He had the authority to do that. We know that because at least on three occasions, Jesus used that. He's teaching in a house, and all of a sudden, there's all this commotion on a roof, and stuff starts falling down, and they lower a, man, a lame individual on a mat down in front of Jesus, and as he settles down in front of Jesus, he looks at him and smiles and says, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" which the lame man probably thought, that's great, that's not why I have showed up here, okay, but you know, that's a a bonus, but then to give credibility to his words, Jesus heals him in front of everyone, then there's a get-together during lunch with Jesus at a Pharisee's house, and there's a gathering, and a woman with a very bad reputation somehow sneaks her way in, she slips in, and then Jesus interrupts this luncheon and gives her his full attention, And he looks at her in the eye and says, Woman, your sins, they're forgiven. And she hadn't even asked anything. She hadn't even confessed anything. And then there's the one that's just mind-boggling, that hanging from the cross, hanging from the cross, Jesus prays a prayer, Father, forgive them. Them being the people who had me arrested, them being the people who had me put here, Them being those who nailed me to this this cross. Them being the soldiers who right now are gambling for my belongings. So Jesus had the power to just announce people's forgiveness. He did it at least three times in the Gospels, which means that he probably did it 300 times as he was doing his earthly ministry. So again, it seems confusing. Why did he have to die for sin? And a couple things before I give you the real reason. And the first one, if you're skeptical or not a Christian, you're going to think it's a dodge. It's not a dodge. I just need to make sure that you know there's a very important question. And part of this, too, if you are a believer, when I talk about these things, it's to help equip you to have these kinds of conversations. That there's a very important category we all experience in every area of life. And here's that category. Something can be true whether we fully understand it or not. And we have to remember that. Every single day, one of you, every single one of you, you use something like this. And you have no idea how it works. But you use it every day. And when it doesn't work, what do you do? Well, we all know you power down, you restart it, you reboot it. And it usually fixes whatever the problem is. But we don't even understand how that works. We just know it works. So you just need to remember that there is a category of many things, of many things that are true or real, whether we understand it or not. And the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus may go into that bucket for you, and that's okay. There are a lot of very practical things in that bucket. Right now, I am talking with a wire over my ear, going down my face, and like a three-by-three pack with batteries in it. And you can be on the internet anywhere in the world and hear me speak. And right now we have an individual in the back with a tablet that is controlling it all as like magic. And we have no idea how it works. See, if I waited to understand and apply all that, and implement it, it would never be implemented. By faith, I, I put this thing on every single week, and with nothing physically connecting us, an individual with a light-up tablet can control it all. And I don't know how it works, but it absolutely works. So it's okay to believe something is true and even apply it without fully understanding it. You and I do it all the time. And if someone predicts and pulls off their own death and resurrection, I feel we should go with whatever that person says, whether we fully understand it or not. And the overwhelming evidence supports the fact that he did do exactly that. So following Jesus is not, it's never been blind faith. And so from time to time, God or Jesus, he's going to ask, he's going to say things or ask us to do things, or ask us to trust in things that don't fully make sense. But that's okay, which leads to our second thing. If Jesus came to explain what God is like, and God says that my sin separates me from Him, I can accept that as true. Which means I can also accept the penalty attached to my sin. I may not like it, understand it, or consider it fair, but who cares? Because on the flip side, as we're going to see in a minute, Jesus has offered me forgiveness. He's offered it to you. And if he said, if he says it required his death to pay for my sin and yours, whether I understand it or, I, or not, who am I to argue with that? He's offering me forgiveness. He's offering you forgiveness. I'll take it, whether I understand it or not. But those are sidebar things. So I'll give you the more fundamental, intellectually honest explanation for why Jesus had to die for our sin. And there's a sense in which this kind of cosmic confusion is not as confusing as it might seem. And here's why I say that. Like you, God values justice. And like God, you value justice. In fact, the reason you value justice, the reason we even have a concept of justice is because we are made in the image of God. But here's the bad news. That your sense of justice, my sense of justice, is flawed, damaged, and self-centered. We say we want justice for all, but we don't really want justice for all. We want aerosol-can justice. Because what I want to do is be able to spray a little justice on you. <laughs> and you want to spray some on me. I want, no, no, no. I want to spray it on you. Don't get any of this on me. In other words, I, I don't want to be held accountable for the things that I've done. I just want to make sure you're held accountable for the things that you've done. And you don't want to be held accountable for the bad things you've done, but you want to make sure everyone else is held accountable for the bad things that they've done just want to make sure that everyone else is held accountable for the bad things that they've done and, and that they get what they deserve, but you don't want to get what you deserve for the bad things that you've done. And of course, none of us want that. This is the evidence. This is the evidence of our flawed, damaged, self-centered sense of justice. I'll make it a little more personal. I may not know you, but let me tell you about you you get far more wound up about other people's sin than you do your own. Just like me. Like, you know, certain things, they'll get you yelling at the TV or yelling at whatever you're watching or listening to on your phone. And it's like those those liberal Democrats and those corrupt Republicans and just you get so wound up about other people's sin you can't even remember the last time in your life that you got as wound up about your own personal sin. We're just like, like, I don't want it on me. I don't just want to spray it in your direction. But don't spray it towards me because our whole understanding of justice is flawed. And here's the key: Our inability to grasp God's righteousness, the embodiment of righteousness, it causes us to overestimate our own righteousness. I mean, have you ever met a self-righteous person? here's something I know about them without knowing them. They have no clue that they're self-righteous. They just think they're right all the time. And they're just so uncomfortable to be around. They're just so self-righteous and they don't know they're self-righteous and they don't know how flawed their self-righteousness is. Why? Because they overestimate their ability to know what is right, what is wrong, and what is just. Their sense of rightness and self-righteousness, let's just be honest, it's just so prideful and it's gross. It's just like I I don't even want to be around them and it's almost impossible to have a relationship with a self-righteous person. And this may come as a shock to some of you, but you're not as aware of your self righteousness either. And neither am I. Because we're flawed, because we're broken. We know there's justice, and we know that justice should be and needs to be done, but the problem is, is that I care, compare my rightness to the people around me, and you compare your rightness to the people around you, who has ever stood in the presence of God to compare their rightness to God. Nobody. So we have the inability to grasp God's righteousness and it causes us to overestimate our own righteousness. And consequently, we grossly underestimate the severity of our sin and the weight of our offense. Which is why to us it just seems like such an overreaction that God has to allow His Son to die for our sin. Like, why so severe? Why can't, how can our sin possibly warrant something so offensive and barbaric? And it seems to be a gross overreaction. But why do we think that way? We think that way because our perspective is limited. And because we compare our righteousness to the world around us. And the problem is the world is a very dark place. And our eyes have adjusted to the darkness. We imagine a better world, but even no matter what we imagine, it falls short. And when we imagine the magnitude of our offense, it utterly falls short. I remember at around six years old, I found some trophies and plaques of my father's that he had been awarded and and, and earned and won. And, And I'm looking at all these, I'm thinking, I'd like some trophies and plaques with my name on them. So, and when I say this, like I'm I'm cringing on the inside. Just know that. I found a nail and I scratched out my dad's first name on these trophies and plaques. And then I carved in my own. (laughs) Boom! I've got trophies and plaques now with my name, Chad Pickering on them. And then one day, my dad's passing by and kind of has to step back and kind of look. and, And you need to know, This was not an emotionally neutral moment for my father. And I remember him calling me to him and saying, Chad, why? Why did you scratch your name onto all these trophies and plaques? To which I replied, because, Daddy, I wanted to have some trophies with my name on them just like you. (laughs) Now... How does an adult communicate to a six-year-old, especially a six-year-old Chad, the significance, the frustration, and the inconvenience of what he's done? What was he supposed to do? Like, have me pay for them? Like, go do some child labor, come pay for this. You know what he did? He accommodated to my capacity. Just like our Heavenly Father from Genesis 2 has accommodated to our capacity. My father bent down, he put his hand on my shoulder, he calmly looked me in the eyes and just said, Chad, please don't scratch your name into any more of dad's plaques and trophies. I'm like, I, I won't dad, can I go play now? <laughs> no wonder we, what, we just want to spray it on other people. No wonder we think we're so much better. Have we ever stood in the presence of the righteous heavenly father? and then looked at our own righteousness? No. So with all that in mind, I want to read you something and then we're going to wrap up. And this is so important. The Apostle Paul, he writes this tome. It's a form of letter. And he writes this to Christians living in Rome. The church in Rome is actually very Jewish. And so he's writing this letter to Christians in Rome to explain what he's been saying to Gentiles, because there's been a little bit of difference in explaining lately in the Apostle Paul, so he writes this letter and he explains why God had to invite his son to die for your sins and for mine. And it's a bit theological, but it's so powerful. And he writes this. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law or by doing good things, as God defines good. Rather, what the law does is through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And you're conscious of your sin." I'm conscious of my sin. You're conscious of the fact that in your life, you have hurt other people. You're conscious of the fact that there was time in, times in your life that when you look back, you realize you mistreated other people or you hurt or mistreated yourself. So you're conscious of sin because you have regret and you're conscious of your sin because you know the rules internally or externally. But Paul's point is, knowing the rules and even keeping the rules is completely insufficient. It does not make you right with God. It just reminds you that you are a rule breaker. To get just really down into it, it just reminds you that you're hopeless and you're doomed, and you cannot do anything to work yourself back into a reconciled relationship with God. And he's writing to an expression of Christianity that is more Jewish than Gentile. So he says to them, before you all get all high and mighty, because you've got the Torah and the law and King David and Solomon and Abraham. There is no difference. He says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Paul completely levels the field. Jew, Gentile, good people not so good people. There is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's the bad news. Here's the good news. He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that comes through Christ Jesus. Not through doing good things or even being true to your own conscience. That is through redemption, the buyback program, that God is going to pay whatever He has to pay to buy back, to redeem the sinners, to get the sinners out of the hole and back into a relationship with Him through the redemption that came by King Jesus. God sacrificed the final king, and the final king would willingly sacrifice Himself so that I and so that you could be made right with God. That's why it's called good news. And it gets better. And God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. See, the question isn't, can we explain it all well? The question isn't, do we understand it all? The question is, will we use our cellular device? Will we use the microphone? Will we push that button or turn the key that is going to start our car? Are you going to use the technology, or are you going to sit around and wait until you could fully understand it? He says that we receive it by faith. So, just the question is have you done this? Most of you have. Some haven't. Paul keeps going. He says, God put on a spectacle for a purpose, that God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And for some some of you, you've read that before and it seems confusing. Here's what it means. The human race did not get what it deserved when it deserved it. That's what that means. That before Christ came into the world that God was overlooking, he was being patient with the sin of every human being who had ever been born and had ever died up to that moment that he sent his son to pay for their sin. Past, present, future He did it to demonstrate His righteousness in the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He says, I'm going to call you out. You are a sinner. I'm going to call you out because you have fallen short. We're not going to dodge this or play games. You fall short. Whether you like it or not, whether you understand it or not, there's a penalty to be paid. But, here's the deal. I'm going to pay the penalty. I'm going to be the just and the justifier. So why did God require Jesus to die for your sin? Here's why. Because of his justice, he demands payment. Because of his mercy, he delayed payment. And because of his grace, he made the payment himself. One more time. Why did God require Jesus to die for your sin? Because of his justice. He demands payment. Because of his mercy, he delayed payment. Because of his grace, he made the payment himself. The historical account and story of Jesus, it incorporates and explains how the world works. It is the perfect story. It is history. It's your story and it's mine. That's because of God's justice He demands payment because of His mercy. He delayed payment because of God's grace. He made the payment Himself. It's why it's good news of great joy for all people. And anything that dumbs that down or dilutes it or creates unnecessary steps, it needs to be eradicated. Your Heavenly Father and mine adapted to our capacity. He is just and the justifier. And we've just simply been invited to put our trust, our full faith in the fact that Jesus died for you, that He died for me to fix us and to fix our relationship with God. And the question is not, do you completely understand it and can you fully explain it? The question is, have you received it? Have you accepted it? Have you submitted to it and surrendered to it? And if not, there's no better time than today because this is fundamental. It's first and foremost. So if you've never done that or you did it as a child or you're not sure it took or that you understood... Here in a minute, I'm going to invite you just to pray a prayer with me. And this prayer is just a way of saying to God, I want to do this. I want this transaction. that You are good and just, and I'm definitely conscious of my sin in my life, and that I'm a sinner, and that you are the justifier, and that I can do not do it on my own. That I've sinned and fallen short of God, of your right standard of living. My sin has created a debt I cannot pay. I believe that Jesus paid that debt. I'm placing my trust in Him as my Savior, my forgiver, my Lord. So here's what I'd like for us to do. If you are a Christian, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer out loud just as a prayer of reaffirmation. And for some of you, today may be the day, like, I, I get it. Like, I've heard this stuff before, but today, like, I finally get it. And if this is your day, I'd, if this is, isn't your day, I, I don't want you to be embarrassed. If you're somebody, like, I'm still not sure, you don't have to say anything out loud. I never ask you to say something you, you don't, can't mean. I don't want to embarrass you. But I would love for those of us who are Christians to do this. And if this is your day that I finally want in on what Jesus is offering, then this is your prayer. So let's just bow our heads as a, a sign of reverence and pray this out loud together, just repeating after me. Heavenly Father, I have sinned. I've fallen short of Your standard of right living. My sin created a debt I cannot repay. I believe Jesus paid my sin debt. I'm placing my trust in Him as my Savior and my forgiver. Amen. Heavenly Father, it's too good to be true and yet there's so much evidence that it is true. So, wherever this lands with us, would You give us the courage to fully embrace this? Wherever this lands with us, give us the wisdom to know what to do and then the courage to do it. And Heavenly Father, on behalf of all of us, thank You. Thank You for not sending us an 11th commandment to keep, not a list to keep. We fall short every single day. We needed a Savior not another command, not another do-over. Thank you for sending Jesus as our Savior. Thank you for demonstrating your power by raising Him from the dead, eliminating any question we might have regarding His love and His authority to make such a bold promise. I pray all this in the name of Jesus.